The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Rowan Simpson has made his name about 10 times, and he's not done yet. He's had a large hand in the product and growth of some of New Zealand's greatest tech exports. He was head of product for Trade Me, and that worked out pretty well. He did a similar role in the early days for Zero, and that has worked out amazingly as a global leader in software as a service. He was an early investor and board chair for Vend, where I first got to know him and work with him and see how much he did to help us grow. Then there's Timely, where he's an investor and director, and that company just announced a $7 million funding round to take their profitable company and scale. Those are just some of the greatest hits we haven't mentioned as latest work. Rowan is one of those people who could have stopped long ago, but invests his social and financial capital to help foster the next wave of tech companies. And through his charitable foundation, is also giving back in more traditional ways. This all might make him sound finished up and out of the game, but he's not. His blog is required reading in tech, with great takes on startup and product, and he's active with the next big companies too, like Melodics, who we've had on here. To chat the mythology of the startup, what product is, the through line of these great companies, and what's next, Rowan Simpson joins us now. G'day. Hey. Sorry for a long ramble through there, but there's there's quite a few hits to um to look at. But shall we go right back to the beginning? What got you into the tech space? And how was it that you were founding a company called Flat Hunt in nineteen ninety nine that led you to trade me? Goodness, nineteen ninety nine makes me sound very old, doesn't it? I, I mean I really got into tech at university. I um started off doing an engineering degree and got into computer science and that was sort of my in. Um you know I'd spent a, a few years after that working as a consultant but had the bug to to create something of my own really and so flat hunt was the the idea um you know it sort of um started off pretty small mostly focused on what we could build what i could build um and then you know um the rest is history really you know the the opportunity came along to work with the guys at at trade me as that was really just getting um funded and and starting to scale uh so joined that team early and flat hunt sort of got got morphed into that eventually became trade me property Mm. um yeah. Wow. And there's quite a few companies like that that trade me kind of assimilated uh, along the years and then took the talents in-house. What was that process like? How was it that it was a company that um, was able to pull in all of these different companies that were kind of replicating things that the papers used to do, but on the internet? Yeah, well, the thing to, I mean, it's sort of been lost to time a little bit. The, the trade me team in the beginning was very small. It was really just Sam, Jess, his sister, myself, and Nigel. Uh, so Nigel was the founder of find someone which is the dating site that um, was part of the trade me group is part of the trade me group um and so yeah both nigel and i had sort of built um you know sort of adjacent things that kind of got sucked in 
Um, but it was really just the four of us for for the first wee while, and a lot of that was a function of of money. We only, you know, Sam raised a hundred thousand dollars from investors, um, and that was all that we had. Um, it was, you know, it was it was a very very small kind of um, focused team in those days. How did you make that work with having uh, four of you and only that small amount of capital? Was it was it making money from the get go, or was this before we mythologized burning cash? Yeah, and... well, I mean, it's funny you should say make it work because I'm not sure that it did. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, there was um, there was a period where where three of the four of us at least left because it wasn't really working. It took a long time for Trade Me to find its business model. We sort of introduced fees reluctantly, um, and that turned out to be a goldmine. So. Um, it took a, it took a long time, and it, it um, you know it was always growing fast. There were always lots of members and, and a growing user base, um, but it took a while for it to develop as a business. You were the the head of product or the person in charge of the product. What does a what does a head of product do? Or what does what does a product person do for a non tech listener out there? Yeah, it was, it's one of these things too. Now it's a it's a role and a job description that you start to see more commonly. But I'm not sure that it was a word I ever used myself when I was in that role. Um, I mean, you know, I, I joke in the stuff that I've written that a product manager is, is someone who keeps lists, um, and you know that's facetious. But it's actually there's an element of truth to that as well. You know, often um, what what we mean by product is someone kind of sitting between the users, sitting between the people who are building the technology, sitting between the people who are designing. Um, and sort of drawing that all together. Um, so, um, you know, there's there's a bunch of things, there's a bunch of jobs that need to be done there that are not necessarily technical, they're not necessarily designer-driven um, roles, um, but they're, they're vital to creating a product that's that's great. So in that in that kind of uh, example of Trade Me, the product is the website, is that right? So, you know, in a uh, clumsy way of putting it, and so you make sure that the website does what the users need it to uh, as efficiently and easily and nicely as possible to keep delivering more of the things you as a company want the website to do, like make money or grow the user base. Yeah, it's the website, but it, and, you know, it's the technology or, you know, it, but it bleeds more into that. So, you know, when I've spoken about product management, there's, there's lots of elements to that that are beyond just the technology or just how it looks to a user or a customer. Um, you know things things like how the, how the product is used. What are you know what are the what are the reasons for engaging in that product? You know how can you tell that it's growing? Which bits are working? Which bits aren't working? Um, all of those sort of factor into um, that. And then there's the business component too. You know what sort of why are you building this product? And and how does that fit into the into the business strategy? If you like as well, is an important part of it. And I, uh, you, you know, from my experience working with good product managers and from this great literature these days around product managers as well with Ben Horowitz, very influential uh, American writer doing some great pieces on uh, product management over the years. Mm. Um, it's as much saying no to things, isn't it, as what it is that you say yes to? Yeah, I mean, there's a sta- famous Steve Jobs quote, focus is saying no. You know, people often think that, um, that you know, creating something great is about um, is about what you do, but often it's about what you don't do, um, in order to create the opportunity for that as well. So you know, prioritization is an is a vital part of good product management. How do you, you know, from the long list of things that you could possibly build or extend the product, how do you pick the ones that you want to do first? And you know, even even in the early days of trade me, that was a constant challenge. Um, when I was in that role, you know, it would be a rare day that that. Um, that people wouldn't kind of bound into the office and say, hey, that's a great idea last night, we could do this and this. Um, and, you know, I sort of developed the habit of being able to rattle off our current priorities, um, you know, just so that I could always ask the question. So, you know, these are 
here's our current priorities. So where does this sit in that in that kind of hierarchy? So we can decide if we want to bump those or if actually this new idea is probably for later. How is it to be the owner of a uh, a product like that that the the users own? Because people have enormous um, kind of ownership of Trade Me and some of those early things like the forums and the way that the users were interacting were as much the character as the fact that you could find things to buy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the community the community of Trade Me was always um, pretty vocal and um, it wasn't everybody, by the way. I mean, we, we had good numbers at the time about how many people were engaging in that aspect of the product that we were building. Um, and took that into account too. Like when you saw feedback in those forums, it wasn't necessarily taken as gospel because we knew that it wasn't necessarily representative. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was one of the great things about Trade Me. I'm not sure if it's still true. Um, you know, whether it's as as um, active and engaging now as a community because time has moved on a little bit. And certainly in those early days of Trade Me, um, you know, they were our test team for a start. You know, yeah. we we would get um, great feedback from. From people quickly about what we were doing right and what we were doing wrong. Yeah, I feel like a lot of those people are now probably arguing on the neighborhood pages on Facebook. I think that's probably right. I think they have, you know, a lot of their activity is, has moved elsewhere now, right? Mm. But, um, but it was it was certainly it was certainly fun in its time. When did you know it was working with Trade Me? Uh, like, you know, you said that you guys had to, um, some of the early team had to fall away for a little while, and then you all came back in. And when did you know, like, oh, this isn't just a just an idea anymore this is like it's it's part of the cultural landscape now wouldn't be too much to say yeah i mean certainly that bit came much later i think it's fair to say though that it was working from the very early days we were you know we were growing quickly there was always momentum even in the beginning so before it was a successful business that you know the wind was in the sails um you know when it became that cultural icon was really i didn't really notice that when i came back um and you know by then the team was a little bit bigger um I remember actually the first time it was in the news after I came back, John Campbell was still a newsreader on television at that point. And the story started and he just said, you know, it was a, it was about some fraud or something that had happened. And he just said, trade me and didn't really explain what that was. And it sort of took me back because in the early days, you know, those times when we were in the media, they would have to stop and explain what options and online options and, you know, even the internet was. Um, but, you know, Trade Me kind of grew up at the same time as the internet. And, and so people kind of started to take that for granted. And it's one of the few markets in the world where a big international player isn't the leader as well, or, or a multinational. So even in Australia, very similar to New Zealand in many ways, it's eBay that's taken uh, hold there. How, how did that happen? Well, it's eBay pretty much everywhere in the world, actually. And eBay grew in many places through acquisition. Um, so, you know, there were multiple marketplaces, but they um, they hoovered a lot of those up. I think there's only one other place. Korea maybe is the only other that has a has a trade me equivalent. So, um, you know, in many ways, we were the USSR of option sites, sort of, you know, limited to our own little market and closed, closed to the outside world. How did you feel when it all went to the sale? Because it was such a big bit of news at the time and the you know, 750 million, maybe up to a billion, and people couldn't believe the number in the media. Not not, not um, people who were maybe uh, financial commentators. But... I think I think even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I still remember the look on Bernard Hickey's face at the press conference when it was announced. Um, people were staggered by that. I think the thing that no one really understood until a bit later was what a successful business it had become. And so, you know, we were a little bit privy to that, you know, that the company had been making good money for a while. And so... You know, that money, that, that valuation was kind of a fair reflection of the business and its prospects. 
And if any company knows the value of all of those classifieds and user-generated content where you get paid for people to do it, it's the newspaper business that you guys ate the lunch of. And so Fairfax buying it, um, they knew. They knew what they bought. Yeah, I mean, they were an obvious buyer at that time. Right? We, were, we sort of joked at the time about just working our way backwards through the newspaper one section at a time. But, you know, that, that was pretty much the business strategy. We did trade me motors and then trade me property and then trade me jobs. And, you know, those were all big sections of the newspaper back in the 90s and early 2000s. So, um, you know, yeah, it, it, it helps if you've got an acquirer who's motivated in those ways. And so you came out of that um, that that journey there and you went into what was a, a small plucky startup with um, with some very uh, experienced and quality leadership uh, people who've, who'd done it before called zero what was it what was it like when you first got into zero how many how many people were involved there and what what brought you to that uh, the, the team was still really small they'd, they'd moved out of the apartment by the time I, I started so we had an office at least but um, you know this was pre-ipo um, there was you know we would we would sort of working through the IPO process and planning for that. Um, we hadn't actually launched the product yet, so no one was using the product. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got a demo of the product and sort of fell in love with the potential of that. Um, and, and yeah, there were lots of things that were exciting about it. The, you know, the fact that it was going to be listed and well-funded um, was really different. The, you know, the, the fact that they had an aggressive kind of plan to, to win large if, if things worked out was um, was really aspirational and inspirational. So I was excited to be part of it. Looking at it, it is so cool. It's almost like the way that Elon Musk said, this is how I'm going to build Tesla. I'm going to do the fancy cars for rich people and turn it into a more affordable model for more people. And then I'm going to do this. And he's done it. And Rod Drury is quite similar in that way. And he was like, I'm going to use the, um, the, the media attention and the money I got from selling my first company to launch this and rah rah how, how, you know, how apparent was it to you that they would be able to carry out all their promises? Because they've gone on to staggering success. Yeah, well, of course now, I, I mean, I'll say I always knew that it was going to be as big as it is. Why well, I'd be a fool to say anything else. I think it would be a complete lie to say that. I mean, I, I hoped that it would be big. But if you'd asked me at the time, I remember actually being asked by a few people around the time of the IPO if they should invest. And it was always a really awkward situation because I didn't want to be giving advice. Um, and so the advice I gave at the time was, you know, this, these, these shares that you're buying for a dollar are not going to be worth a dollar in time. They'll be worth either nothing or they'll be worth $10. Mm. And so that gives you a sense of maybe what I thought the, the upper limit was in my head at that point. Yeah. And um, the, the role that you were doing there in helping to shape the product, what kind, of things, um, what kind of things were you able to bring in and do for them? And what kind of stuff can you see? In the zero you use today, because the actual, I've been using the product since pretty much it started. Uh, and there's still a lot of consistency to that first product experience. Yeah, I mean, I still use the product today. We use it with all the companies we work with. It's, um, it's, it's great. And I think one of the things that has sustained um, and, you know, people like me who were involved early through the, through the long journey of zero has been that the product has always been good. Um, you know, my, my role there was head of product strategy, so I wasn't part of the development team. Um, I sort of sat between Rod and them in some ways. And um, one of the things that I really identified there as a thing that I could bring was that at TradeMe we had a real um, fact, sort of Trump's faith kind of mindset. So, you know, if you have an opinion about something, that's great. If you've got numbers which show something, then that, that will win the argument. And um, you know, bringing some of that thinking into into zero and sort of trying to get people to 
um, really think about how the product was being used, not based on what people would say, because even in the early days, people would rave about how great the product was, um, but to really look at what they were doing and try and learn from, you know, that evidence rather than sort of just opinion. I like, like when people say that they were using more advanced features than they really were and they were only reconciling or yeah well i mean even and in every company does this but you you tell a story about your product and how you imagine it will be used um but it's also important that you kind of ground yourself in reality by understanding how it's actually been used so you know a good example from those early days is bank feeds like we we latched onto the idea pretty early that having an automated bank feed was a real um, competitive advantage or you know over having to manually import your bank statement like you used to do in old accounting products and so, you know, we told the story about how awesome that was pretty aggressively. Um, but we also knew that only a small subset of customers actually had that functionality kind of turned on and, and enabled. And so there were sort of two things that came out of that realization that, you know, if we hadn't been honest about that, we might not have done. One was to really encourage more people to do it. So, you know, thinking about just simple things you can do in the product to encourage people to turn that on. Um, yeah, and then understanding the value of that. So, you know, really digging into the numbers and understanding that those customers who do have that enabled use the product differently so that this, there's some truth to the story if that makes sense right right so they're stickier or they they don't churn as right fast. so yeah, the, yeah. the story is actually true you know what i mean like the, the, the pr matches the reality and so having been involved in a couple of um you know big high profile companies where you'd been part of the team tell me about moving into the next stage where you started to become a um uh, an investor in advisor and director for the next wave of companies. Was that a really um, conscious decision to start to kind of move into that stage or did opportunities just come to you? None of this was conscious, Simon. It's, um, it's all opportunistic um, and, and continues to be actually. So, um, you know, the opportunity to, to get involved with Vend and some other ventures that so we got into around the same time um, you know, was just a function of of, of people and um, them doing interesting things and, and deciding to tip in and be part of that. And were those people the people you'd had exposure to from those companies? Like there's that wonderful idea of the Trade Me alumni and all the companies they've gone on to be part of. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think um, that's a big part of, I guess, my investment thesis for as much as you could say I have one, um, you know, investing in, in the person or the people who are part of that, that early team is a big part of it. And so, you know, um, certainly with Vaughan, you know, I'd worked with him a little on the Travel Bug project at at, um, at Trade Me with Ryan and Scoff, you know, knew them through what they'd done with Book It and what have you, so had a chance to get to know them a little through that process. Um, you know, I think that, that goes a long way to, to um, you know, um, creating the sort of, um, you know, the relationship that, that, that you build an investment around. And how did you learn um, how to be a director and be an advisor and take those kind of roles where you're quite involved in a company, but you're also not you're not you're not on the payroll in the early days. You're not um, necessarily able to force through the decisions. Yeah, what what what, what kind of relationship? Um, yeah, do, do you have with those companies? Like, with the example of Vince? Yeah, I'm still learning. I think I'd be lying if I said I thought I had the answer to that. Um, you know, you learn by doing is kind of the way that it, the way that it's worked out for me. Um, you know, I've always I, the, the the thing I latched onto really early, and I'm really pleased that I I realised it is that the best founders pick their investors and they pick their advisors. Um, so if you're kind of sitting back waiting for founders to pitch you you're self-selecting for those that you know have taken a different approach 
um, where, you know, the best founders that I've found you know, go out and shoulder tap the, the, you know, the people that they want to be involved in their venture. And so I've worked really hard to try and be that. So I've taken a very founder centric view of, of, you know, being a director and advisor, my job's not there to go in and beat them up and be the nasty chairperson or, you know, or, or anything like that, but to really get alongside in the early stages, there's always lots more to be done than there is, you know, people or time or money to do it. And so there's always plenty of opportunities to get involved if you if you're prepared and willing and able to help. So those are the sorts of that's the sort of approach I've taken. Um and 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 yeah, I mean those and, and then it evolves quickly too, you know. So Vend when I first got involved was Vaughn. Um and you know, shortly after that a couple of other people, but there wasn't a lot to point to that you could say, you know, there is there is Vend. Um, you know, we were we were building the original kind of financial model in a Google spreadsheet. We were, you know, trying to work out what the shareholders agreement should be. Um, whereas, you know, five years later, it was it was much more about, you know, what's the right structure for the board and what's the, um, you know, a lot of those sort of more grown up company questions. One of the cool things with the way that Vend uh, exploded in the journey there was it ended up being one of the biggest, uh, you know, the second big investment round ended up being one of the the biggest private uh, investments in New Zealand history, which is a, a, a pretty amazing um, journey from starting out with a couple of people and a, and a dream to, to bringing in a, quite a significant bit of international capital. Yeah, and I mean, I think it, I think it shows like we talk a lot and, or people talk a lot in New Zealand about how, sh- how short of capital we are, um, but it's, it, the evidence just doesn't back that up. When, when good companies have come along and execution is there to, to back that up and you you can paint the the you know the future for investors then the money the money comes and so you know we we're able to do that at multiple rounds at the end and they all built on each other tell me about a little bit of a different approach to that you know Ven came up in that first wave of um there's lots of money go and find the users mm. tell me about the approach with timely which uh was a different one where you uh you you guys as a company or you people as a company took it to profitability which was um a bit ahead of that that curve as well. Yeah, I mean that's right. Timely beat both zero and Venn to profitability, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think it goes back to what I was saying before. That it's a it's a founder centric approach. So the approach that Timely's taken really, you know, reflects the values and mindset of the founders. That you know they um, have retained a, a decent percentage of the ownership themselves by not raising a lot of money. They uh, have taken a you know a very sensible and managed approach to how they've spent it. They haven't chased growth at, at any cost, and they've um, you know, built a really great business um, from that. Um, you know, I mean, they have in common with Venn, though, a really strong culture, you know, view of how the team should be built. They're different. They're not the same. But, you know, with a strong founder kind of driven view of what the teams should be and how they how they want to work, really. What's the through line? What's the thing that attracts you to uh, be involved with all of these companies? And, uh, you, you know, because you, 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 from reading your blog over the years as well, you do put a lot of value on your time and take steps to measure your time and know what you're putting your time into. And obviously it's not something you just go throwing around. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I have no interest in building a massive portfolio of these companies. That's, that's certainly not my approach. I, you know, I'm happy to have a small list of companies that I'm excited to be involved in and working on. Um, and so, yeah, I try and pick them carefully. I think, um, you know, the, the, what I said before about being picked by them, I guess, is an important part. Like, I only want to work with people who want to work with me. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's an element too of scrappy execution. And I've used that that term without ever really properly explaining what I mean by it. It's hard to kind of define, but 
you sort of know it when you see it like these people who just have a way of getting through the hard things and getting you know getting to the next stage and so i've tried to kind of develop a bit of an instinct for you know who who can do that and in terms of the startup journey uh you, you know you mentioned the scrappy execution there uh, a recent blog post of yours um, that I loved was about that mythology of the startup uh, being one founder out alone and, mm. you, you know, battling and maybe, you know, eating instant noodles for five years. But it's not it's not one person alone. It's the team from the early days that really succeeds, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the frustrating things about how, uh, you know, high growth early stage companies are kind of covered in the media is that the stories you read um, are, are often just not not reflective of reality um you know even the things that we celebrate i mean you mentioned before you know the, the great milestone time has raised seven million dollars and that's been a news story um but you know all of the other things that they've done over the years haven't necessarily kind of been milestones in the same way but probably much more impactful you know um so yeah there is a, there is a real mythology that we tell ourselves about how companies are successful you know the the idea that it's one person you know trade me as sam and zero is rod and vendors vaughn um you know, that's not true in any of those companies. Um, you know, the idea that you kind of, you know, it's, it's that one person kind of working away feverishly in their bedroom and they launch and suddenly they're inundated with customers and then they're massive and a company buys them. And, you know, none of those things are true. Almost you take every sentence in that mythology and and none of those things kind of stand up to reality. You know, um, Trade Me was kind of seven years of constant growth that built to that point where we sold the company. You know, Zero has been going more than 10 years now. Um, and is you know recognised as successful now, but if you kind of stop in any of those earlier stages, certainly not true. You know, Vend has its has had its speed bumps too. So you know, none of none of these things um, actually work out the way that we tell the story, unfortunately. So yeah, that that blog post that I wrote was a bit of an attempt to try and cut through some of that and and try and explain. You know, this is how it actually works. And people love the shorthand. You know, that when you said uh, Vend had speed bumps. It had the kind of speed bumps that any company has, and people are like, does this mean it's over? And it's it's not like that, you know. Like uh, any company has an up, and every company has a down. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, even even um, there's so much that's retrospective too. I mean, you asked me before about zero. I mean, um, you know, even the even the the origin stories that you create around these companies and how you started and why, um, you know, they evolve over time. And and by the you know by the time the company's big and successful and getting media coverage often there's you know the actual the actual story sort of lost <laughs> there's uh, communications directors helping to shape <laughs> yeah well th- i mean yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah i mean th- th- yeah. that's true to a certain extent right and and um and it's kind of a shame because i think that um it's misleading for people who are working on those earlier stages of ventures i mean this is the point i was trying to make in that post is that you know if you're actually starting something yourself then thinking that it's going to be like the mythology sort of promises you it might be is is actually dangerous because it sort of leads you to decisions that are that are that are probably not helpful. So how does New Zealand help make more of these companies because you've had really interesting um, thoughts about the best way to fund them and the the best way to take uh, to, to grants and equity and uh, mm. all, all of these kind of approaches that we have a, a bit of a mix of in the current uh, ecosystem. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one one lens of that is that actually we're doing pretty well. Um, you know, we've talked today about a handful of companies that have been, you know, big successes so far. Um, and there's there's others too. I'm certainly not, uh, you know, there was a point in time where I thought, you know, I was an investor in most of the interesting companies, but that's definitely not true today. There's lots of people doing interesting things and that has 
grown and evolved. Um, I mean, I used to be I used to be really scathing of the of the term ecosystem. Um, you know, we use that a lot to describe kind of you know all of the component parts of people working on these sorts of companies, um, and often inaccurately. But I think actually it's it's a term that's growing on me because it's actually it's actually a good descriptor of what we have. You know, you have you have the big trees and you have the small you know small trees and you have the the very young trees kind of growing up, and they're all a bit interdependent, but they're also um, you know their own their own things too, and so. I mean, we look around and say there's big successes and there could be more, um, but, you know, we're a function of our size as well. Yeah, and, and with those things like the um, the big trees, like the trade me's that then spit out all the people to go and do the next round, like Zero that helped to kind of uh, normalise the cloud and software as a service for business here, which has really helped um, Vend and all, all the others, uh, the, the big successes beget more successes more than maybe a grant scheme or... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like to say, you know, an ecosystem grows one success at a time, and and that's definitely true. I mean, you know, you see, you know, people who have had success then recycling that in the same way as you see in an ecosystem, you know, that recycles. And so, um, I I personally think that that's how the ecosystem will grow is from the bottom up, you know, through success, not from the top down through kind of you know design. Tell me about what you're doing with the Family Foundation and Hoku and uh, the, the work you guys are doing with the Family Office. Yeah, I mean, Family Office is not a word that's well known in New Zealand. It's pretty, it's, you know, it's understood better globally. But um, so we set up Hoku Group, which is kind of, you know, managing all of these different component parts of, of the situation we found ourselves in. Um, and, you know, the foundation is, is one part of that, the ventures that we've talked about, another part. Um, you know, with the with the foundation, I guess we're trying to take some of the same lessons and mindset that we have with um, the venture investments and applying that to the nonprofit world or you know social impact world, um, and have have been able through that to work with some great founders as well. And you know, all of the same dynamics we've talked about apply. Um, you know, the great founders in in that world choose choose their donors and choose their investors, and they they have the same you know need for scrappy execution. All these things are consistent and common. So. The only difference really is that it is that it's uh, it's an investment and impact rather than a financial investment. That's pretty cool to be in a position like you just said, uh, the the position we find ourselves in. Because being early in with uh, a number of uh, global scale successes means you're probably pretty well set up, and you could just kind of kick back, put the heels up, um, relax. But how do you define success? And and um, I guess I'm trying to get to. I noticed that last year you you took a year to travel with your family. So even with all of the stuff going on and anything in the world you could do, you, you, you hit pause and took the family away for a year. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, happiness is wanting what you have, not having what you want, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, last year was a massive privilege for us. Um, we, we took our, we got two young boys, took them out of school for a year and went traveling. And, and we called it a trip, not a holiday, because it, it definitely was. Um, the original idea was to spend a month in 12 places. We, we compromised that a bit and went to a few more places, but spent a month in some really interesting places all around the world um, and learned a lot in the, in the process. I, I think, you know, um, the biggest lesson for me is how, how much you can squeeze in if, you, um, if you're really intentional about your time. And we filled every day with, some, with different things and it felt like the longest year of our lives in a good way. And is that part of like being very intentional as well with, setting up a foundation quite young and uh, doing all of these things to start giving back uh, a bit earlier in the cycle than, than some entrepreneurs. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the th great things about Trade Me is that it was, you know, it was a complete exit when we were all still quite young. I mean, it's it's more than ten years ago now, and I still don't feel that old today. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's not it's not common for people to find themselves in that position where they have wealth at that age. And I didn't know what to do. I, I think that was probably true of some of the others in, in that position as well. And so, I mean, the the I, I would I would definitely not say that we've um, we've settled on how we're going to approach that, that you know that foundation piece. Um, you know, we're funding it, we're learning as we go, the exact same approach that we've taken with, with you know, venture investments. If you look at some of the first um, venture investments we do, those names haven't necessarily popped up today because they weren't great successes. Um, but you learn a lot from them, so it's all about the feedback loops, really. And what's next? What's the next thing uh, that you're involved with? Um, well, I mean, there's sort of a rolling thunder with these things. So, I mean, you know, a, a company like Timely now is all of a sudden recognized in, in the news um, but you know I've been working on that for for five years or so since we first invested um, and so you know the, the the things that we've been working on for a couple of years will, will maybe be the things that, that that you'll hear about next if if they're successful and and not all of them are um, but yeah I mean there's there's a, there's a couple of new investments we've made recently you mentioned melodic so we're excited to be working with Sam and his team um, and yeah we'll, we'll keep rolling on that and and um, the model continues to evolve like I um, un unlike um, some other venture investors who have more of a fund kind of driven kind of time frame to what they're doing, um, we're in this kind of unique position where we don't have to do any any investment. So we're, we're happy to kind of sit back and wait for the ones that really, really excite us or that, that you know, fit well in terms of our ability to contribute to them and, and um, the time we have and all those things. A couple of questions that we ask everyone. What's the thing that you wish you'd known a few years earlier you know what what would you go back and speed up yeah well you mentioned focus before I mean I, I do love that line from Steve Jobs I think um, I'm a bit of a function in my generation I mean many of us have been told that we can do anything we've sort of been raised on that mantra which is great it's true um, but many of us have interpreted it to mean we can do everything um, and so yeah, one of the things that I sort of con continually work on which I sort of had um, grasped onto a bit earlier is that idea of constraints and um, you know narrowing your focus to the things you actually really want to focus on and really want to um, you know contribute to um, so yeah I've been thinking a lot about that recently sort of the, the idea of unbounded commitments is something Nick Wakelin taught me actually you know you only have room in your life for one of those um, and so you know you can commit to a, you know, have, have, have a bunch of different commitments from work to family to hobbies to sport whatever um, but you kind of need to choose the one that you're just going to let run, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I still wouldn't say I've necessarily nailed that, but that's something that I wish I'd kind of latched onto a bit earlier. And what advice when people come to you for advice? What advice do you give to young entrepreneurs when they're just starting out? I actually just wrote about this. So the best thing, the best advice I can give to a young founder would be um, swim in the ocean. That sounds strange, but let me walk you through it. Um, so, uh, I sort of learnt this the hard way when I did, uh, got into some triathlon a few years ago and, and sort of had to had to get into some ocean swimming. Um, you know, when you do that, it's very humbling. Um, you, you learn pretty quickly how terrible your technique is, um, all of those things. So, um, you know, swimming is one of those really interesting things where only about 9% of the energy you use when you swim, you, you know, is used to move you forward. All the rest is kind of just wasted energy. And I think that's a really good kind of metaphor for an early um, an early venture you know you're often flailing around and most of what you try doesn't work 
Um, but if you can kind of really focus on your technique and, and narrow in on that, then that can be really helpful. You have to stay calm when you're swimming in the ocean. You know, there's no line to follow, just the same as there's no path for adventure. Um, and yeah, I think the metaphor just keeps extending. You know, it's, um, it's even helpful if you can swim with the tide. Um, you know, so, you know, you've mentioned Zero and Vend and Timely. You know, all of those have benefited from sort of the mega trend of, of software as a service. And so if you can, as a young entrepreneur, kind of latch on to that kind of, you know, evolving technology wave or whatever, um, then then that, that's going to push you along too. So swimming. Swimming. Oh, I'll think of that next time I'm in the pool. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you can get more of Rowan's writings, which I heartily recommend, head to hoku.nz uh, and go to the ideas section where the best of the blog keeps evolving. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much to Jose Barbosa for producing and thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the spin-off podcast network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.